Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to The History of Italy. Crossover episode. Christopher Columbus and Genoa with Mark Vinet of the History of North America podcast. The episode that follows was a chat I had with Mark Vinet of a new podcast I have discovered and am enjoying, The History of North America. Mark would do a lot better job at telling you what his podcast is about in the interview. I hope you enjoy our chat. Before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is presented by Clark's. Clark's story began almost 200 years ago when Cyrus and James Clark made a slipper from sheepskin. How comfortable does that sound? At the time, it was groundbreaking, a combination of invention and craftsmanship that's remained at the heart of what Clark's does. From the very beginning, Clark's has always thought differently. Brilliant ideas are what set Clark's apart. We are teaming up with Clark's and Podgo to bring you 30% off select items, including the iconic Clark's Desert Boot by going to podgo.co slash Clark's. That's podgo.co slash Clark's. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. In this special crossover episode, join me and Mike Corradi of A History of Italy as we turn back the clock to 1492 and Christopher Columbus, who sailed the ocean blue during the exciting age of exploration. But first, allow me to introduce myself to Mike's audience. My History of North America series presents in a positive manner the sweeping saga of the continent from its deep history origins to our present epoch. For the purposes of my podcast, I define North America to include the USA, Canada, and Mexico. I explore the interesting, compelling, inspiring, and tragic stories of these three great nations, their inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, and respective geographies. My goal is to search for the multiple causes that lead to the thrilling story of North America, an action-packed tale that's still unfolding. I voyage back to earlier times and investigate incidents that set in motion a series of events that help explain the close yet sometimes contentious relationship of these three continental neighbors. The United States, Mexico, and Canada have many important features and attributes in common. It's not surprising, therefore, that the history of the exploration and subsequent settlement of these countries are closely interrelated. The complete history of these three nations cannot be properly analyzed and understood without reference to the history of the other. Part of this saga brings us today to the consequential and controversial life and deeds of Genoese navigator and explorer Christopher Columbus. But before we take a deep dive into his city of birth, Mike Corradi would like to tell my audience about his podcast. 
Hello, all you wonderful History of North America listeners. After that wonderful, wonderful introduction by Mark, mine will probably be a bit embarrassing. Anyway, as Mark said, my name is Mike Corradi. I am the producer of A History of Italy podcast. It is a chronological history of our messy, messy peninsula from the fall of the Western Roman Empire all the way, if we ever get there, to the present day. We're more or less around the 13th and 14th centuries, so we've done quite a bit so far, but we're looking forward to taking you on the rest of the journey. And I must say, I'm really, really pleased to hook up with Mark for this special crossover episode. Here is a short synopsis of the Columbus story. Legendary explorer Christopher Columbus was born in 1451 in the Italian sea town of Genoa and began sailing as a teenager and eventually became an experienced cartographer, seafarer, and navigator. Columbus believed that sailing west would be a faster way to get to the lucrative Asian trade markets. Spain's King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella were intrigued with the idea and gave Columbus the financing for the voyage. In August of 1492, Columbus set sail across the Atlantic Ocean. After two months, he and his crew arrived in the present-day Bahamas, convinced this was India. They were greeted by the native population and Columbus initiated trading. Between 1492 and 1504, he made a total of four voyages across the Atlantic. Although he never reached mainland North America, his voyages quickly led to the opening up of the continent to European colonization. Mike, where is Genoa? Okay, well, let's start with a little bit of geography. So, you know, Italy is traditionally seen, and it is, a long boot. And you imagine this boot sort of pulling back eastwards to give a nice kick to the island of Sicily. So, got the boot in mind? Now, take a huge piece of broccoli, about three times as wide as the boot, and stick it in the top of the boot, and that's what Italy looks like, basically. That broccoli up the top is the part that stretches out into Europe, and that is the Alps. Genoa is on the top left, where the broccoli slopes back down into the boot. You could also say it's the left armpit of Italy. That part of Italy is the Ligurian coast, the coast of Liguria. Liguria is one of the 20 Italian regions quite a nice place, very temperate area because it's protected from the inland part by the mountains. It's on the sea, so it's kind of the Florida of northern Italy, and the elderly like to go and holiday there. Italian people don't move around a lot. They don't actually retire there, but they like to go for there for holidays. And you'll also find the very famous and beautiful Cinque Terre in the area. The regional seat of the region of Liguria is Genova in Italian, or Genoa as we say in English. Mike, what do you say to all our listeners who don't like broccoli? <laughs> uh, well, it does look a lot like broccoli, so you don't have to eat it, just visualize it. Okay, fine. Tell us how and when Columbus's birth city was founded. Well, we mentioned the name of the region that Genoa is in, that is Liguria, and the name comes from pre-Roman people called the Liguri, who actually covered quite a bit of land from southern France down through the Piedmont area to modern-day Liguria, down into Tuscany, and up into the region I currently live in, which is Emilia-Romagna. Indeed, we have a few legends about the Liguri also in our area. And they would have covered this vast area. Now, around the year 500 BCE, 
that is when the port city of Genoa was founded. It's not entirely clear whether it was actually these Liguri who founded the city or if they took over a trading post of the Etruscans. But in any case, around the year 500 is where we can approximately place the founding of the city of Genoa. Are there any sites or ruins from that era still in the city? Not actually inside the city and clearly marked, but when you do dig in Italy, you're bound to find something. And very, very often we do find Etruscan ruins under Roman ruins or maybe ruins built alongside or on top of Etruscan ruins. I'm really fascinated by the Etruscans and to know that Genoa has a connection with them is fascinating. Consider they were, you know, all over the place in, in the time of their expansion. So all of that area up towards the north, the Piedmont area, the Emilia area, the Tuscan area. So they had this quite widespread evidence of, of the, the presence of the Etruscans. What was the Republic of Genoa and the Italian peninsula like following the collapse of the Roman Empire in 476 and during the Middle Ages? Like many places in Italy, towards the end of the Roman Empire, the lack of power, of central power, meant that the bishops, so that the church basically was taking over control of a lot of the peninsula. And that was also the case in Liguria in general, in the area around Genova. And indeed, we have evidence of the bishop of that area writing to the first, let's call him king, it's not really the correct thing to say, but the first ruler of Italy after the fall of the empire, who was a barbarian general by the name of Odoacer, and he ruled for a while. Then we had the invasion by the Goths of Theodoric, and so Genoa would have been part of the kingdom of Theodoric, also known as Theodoric the Great. He lasted from about 493 to around 525, and after his death, not long after his death, the Gothic War started, which was a war in which the Byzantine, so the Eastern Roman Empire, wanted to reunite the empire, and they managed to take all of Italy from the Goths, but soon lost it when in 568, another barbarian people came into Italy, and that was the Lombards. Genoa stayed under Byzantine control after the Lombard invasion. But eventually it did fall to the Lombards in 638 under their king Rothery, who was also the first to write down the laws that until that point, the laws of the Lombards had been all oral. Then the poor Lombards were kicked out by the Franks, called in by the popes, who had finally come to the realization that they could no longer look to the Eastern Empire for help. So they relied, the popes relied on the Franks. The Franks kicked the Lombards out. And for a while, Genova was ruled over by a series of Frankish counts. And when they also got distracted and were doing things elsewhere for a long period, the area, Liguria, Piemonte, were ruled over by a powerful family called the Obertengi. Then, as uh, things went along, Genoa, like Venice before her, started to develop a certain level of independence. And Genoa always looked to the sea. From the very beginning, they weren't that interested in what was going on inland. However, the fact that early sort of in the seven and eight hundreds, the Saracens, the, the Arabs, were patrolling the seas, raiding, they'd even conquered Sicily, meant that for a long period, Genoa was sort of bottled up and wasn't able to unleash its potential like Venice was freer to do on, on the other coast of Italy. Just a reminder, here we're talking Genoa is the Tyrrhenic coast, whereas Venice would be the Adriatic coast, which are two seas within the Mediterranean, basically. 
But eventually they manage, with the help of also other Italian city-states, to sort of break out of this control of the, of the Arabs. And they started to extend, Genoa started to extend its influence, first over Corsica, then parts of Sardinia. And when slowly the Mediterranean opened up, also further east, all the way to Constantinople, with various... We can call them colonies, although they weren't political colonies. It was more a question of trade and commerce and not always controlled by the Genoa authorities themselves. It was often a case of a family, an important Genoese family, branching out, setting up a business and then sort of the the colony or whatever you could call it growing from those individual family businesses. So it was a mix of Genoa actually operating in these areas, but also the Genoese families operating in these areas. When did it exactly become a so-called city-state? Like many city-states, it's sort of hard to pinpoint. You could place it, if you want, in the period of sort of the 11th century, when we have what was called, what was known as the communal period, For Genoa, 11th century, maybe a bit early, maybe sort of beginning of the 12th. And that's the period when cities started to nominate the consuls. So the first period of the communes was the consular period when they would elect these officials that would govern the city for a limited period, usually about a year. So if you really wanted to say that's more or less when it started, you could place it in the early 12th century. But in reality, you know, Right after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, many parts of Italy started to become independent. So it's a bit also like Venice. It's a bit hard to actually pinpoint the, the exact date. And as a historian, Mark, you know very well that you have to sort of at a certain point choose a moment. So if we wanted to choose that moment arbitrarily, if you want, probably the beginning of the 12th century. And that's when they also started to come into contact and obviously friction with other city-states such as Pisa which would eventually lead to, after continuous wars and fights, to a great battle won by Genova in 1284, the Battle of Meloria, which sort of put an end to Pisa's dreams of being a a great maritime republic. Then, as things went on, there was a whole issue of the communes fighting against the Holy Roman Emperors. For example, towards the end of the 12th century, we had Frederick Barbarossa fighting against the Lombard League and Genoa was initially involved but then you know wasn't too interested they they sort of have a history of looking towards the sea rather than inland then in the 13th century their commune moved like other communes from the consular period to the period of the podesta and that happened because cities realized that all the infighting wasn't getting them anywhere so they were starting to choose an elected official from elsewhere who theoretically could be above the factions and and the warring parties. The 13th century also saw growing hostilities with Venice, also over questions in the East, in the Middle East, and also around Constantinople. And the wars with Genova led up to the the culmination, which was the Battle of Curzola, that was 1298, in which Genoa definitively defeated Venice, but with no real end result in the sense that everything went back to the status quo. Uh, the 13th century in general also saw them get onto the whole Guelph and Ghibelline business because they didn't want to be let out of that. And growing increasingly as an economic power to the point, for example, 1252 saw the first golden coin in Genova. And I sometimes talk about, you know, the importance of having your own money that, you know, that really means independence in the end. So the first Genoese coin, 1252, 
although it never reached the importance that the that the Florence would. Then Genoa started to experiment a bit with uh, another kind of diarchy, choosing two members of important families. And you could say that the real, let's say, great moment or the golden moment of Genoa, which included the Battle of Curzal, in which they defeated Venice, was sort of end of the 13th century, 1297 to 1299, in which they had the diarchy of two powerful families, the Doria and the Spinola, working together there. Then the 14th century came along, and Genoa tried with nominating external signori. This is a term which sort of means lord, and uh, one of these, for example, was Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII, who kicked the bucket way too early, so he didn't get to be the Lord of Genoa for very long. They then tried with Charles of Anjou, but that also didn't uh, last very long. And then they managed to get their act together again just in time to fight off the threat of the Aragonese, who, along with the French, had started to operate and expand into Italy. Then, basically, to get us up to Columbus's time, to Cristoforo, Columbus, Colombo, and his time, Genova tried, was governed by France, then by Milan with the rising power of the Visconti, and then basically back to self-governing in the period we're interested in, borrowing the figure of the Doge, the Doge, from Venice. And that brings us more or less up to the mid-15th century. Let's step back to the second half of the first millennium. My audience know how important historical timelines are to me. It helps folks put things in perspective. So if we go back to the years 500 to 1000 in Genoa, we know that period is often referred to as the Dark Ages in England and other European countries. Would you say it was also a Dark Age for Genoa and Italy in general? <laughs> That's a good, a good question. You know, it depends what you mean by dark. I don't think it was as dark as, as we've always wanted to make it out. Obviously, we had a situation in which a great society, you know, the Roman Empire, which had reached levels of sophistication, of architecture, of, of law, and, and populace. You know, I mean, Rome, at a certain point during the Augustan age, had reached a million inhabitants. So definitely we have a period in which there was a going back. That level of sophistication was no longer possible. I mean, you, they know in Italy, they no longer had the engineers that could fix the roads, that could fix the aqueducts. They would just sort of show up and look at them and just not know how to fix these things. Then, you know, with the Lombard invasion, like I said, we had, again, air quotes, barbarian people coming in with no written laws, just oral laws, and ruling the country for so long. So I suppose in that sense, you could say it was a sort of dark age, but that doesn't mean, you know, nobody was studying, nobody was finding new ways to do things, knowledge uh, was still there, but definitely it was a step back compared to what had been reached during the Roman Empire. When you mention the Lombards and the Franks, what comes to mind for me is the Italian modern region or province of Lombardy, and the Franks remind me of Charlemagne. How do you connect those two? Charlemagne was the man who defeated the last Lombard king. So basically, it was Charlemagne's father, Pepin, who was called in by the Pope to ask for protection from the Lombards. Because anybody in Italy who is looking to conquer the whole of the peninsula is eventually going to clash with the Pope. And the Pope was always looking out for his state 
making sure that whoever was around him wouldn't eventually try to take his state under their influence. And that was what hap- was happening with the Lombards. Despite the fact, interestingly, that if you wanted to find a first step on the way to the creation of the papal states, it was actually the Lombards who did it. I mean, one of the first steps. And that was the so-called donation of Sutri. What happened was that the king, the Lombard king at the time, Lutprand had taken the city of Sutri, which had been still under Byzantine influence, because we must remember that although the Lombards defeated the Byzantines, the influence of the Byzantines in many coastal areas was still very strong for for a long time. So King Lutprand of the Lombards took the city of Sutri from the Byzantines, but when it was time to give it back, he didn't give it back to the Byzantines, but directly to the Pope. So it was basically the first time in history that officially, because then there was a whole donation of Constantine business, which was a big fake, but it was the first time in official history that a king was giving land to the Pope. So that's how you tie in Charlemagne and the Lombards. Basically, the Franks were the ones that came in and booted out some of the Lombards, because then many of the Lombards who were never really into being united behind one king stayed on. And indeed, many important Italian families of the later centuries would trace their lineage back to the Lombards. And basically, uh, for a long, long time, whenever Italians themselves and also other Europeans would refer to the Italians as the Lombards, even in the time of Dante Alighieri, for example. And today, one of the 20 regions I mentioned before is the region of Lombardy. And the, the seat, the regional seat of Lombardy is the city of Milan. Mike, could you describe the Genoa of the mid-15th century when Columbus was born in 1451? So first of all, when we say Genova in, uh, in 1451, we don't mean just the city of Genova, but we mean a sort of, like we said before, a mini empire, more of an economic and trade empire than an actual political empire, but nevertheless, an empire which would have included Corsica, parts of Sardinia, colonies all around the Mediterranean, and so on. And Genova was divided like many cities with internal divisions with families lining up on either side. The main, the most important families at the time were those of the Adorno and the Campo Fregaso, or, or just Fregaso families. And like in many Italian cities, those internal divisions would line up with external divisions. So, for example, the Fregaso were in line with the Anjou, and the Adorno would have been more in line with the Aragonese. Uh, for example, Domenico Colombo, Cristoforo Colombo's father would have been a member of the Fregaso faction, let's say. And in this period, like Columbus later would, Genoa was already looking away from the Mediterranean towards the Atlantic. That was because the growing influence of the Turks in the east meant that the Italian city-states were being pushed out of that area. And so Geneva had already started experimenting with routes going out of the Mediterranean, going to Portugal, going to Flanders, going to England, and so moving away from the Mediterranean at that time. Christopher Columbus's father, Domenico, was, uh, I said, involved with the Fregazo, and they had also assigned him the control of a tower inside the city. And that's how we know more or less where we can identify Columbus's birthplace. And it's interesting also to a quick consideration on on Italy at that time, because, you know, when you think of all of the greatness of Italy that you see in films and books and video games, etc., this was the time, because we must remember that Christopher Columbus was a very similar age, for example, to Leonardo da Vinci. He was a very similar age to Lawrence, the magnificent Lorenzo il Magnifico. Machiavelli would be born just 18 years after Columbus. 
when Columbus was going back and forth across the Atlantic, that was when we saw the rise and fall of the Borgias. And then when Columbus started getting the idea of moving towards the Atlantic and exploring the Atlantic, a certain little artist known as Michelangelo was born as well. So that's the time in which, you know, we can place Columbus and his Genoa. The facts surrounding the early life of Columbus are vague and shrouded in legend and mystery. What can you definitively tell us about his birth and youth spent in this Italian seaport? Well, we mentioned before that his father uh, was called Domenico, Domenico Colombo, obviously. He was a wool merchant and later innkeeper, but he never stopped being a wool merchant. His mother was a woman by the name of Susanna Fontana Rossa, Red Fountain. That means not that it's particularly important, but amusing, let's say. So uh, he was definitely born in Genova. It's not 100% sure whether he was actually born in sort of, when we say the historical center of a city, we usually mean the Roman center of a city. So he was either born in an area called Olivella, which is where they had the house, or he may have been born at his grandfather's house in a place called Quinto, which means fifth, because it was a fifth mile away from Genova. So in one of those two places. He would have studied at the School of Woolmakers because in Genoa, like in many other cities, Florence, Venice, for example, a lot of the daily life would have been controlled by the corporations or guilds, if you will. So he would have studied in the Woolmakers Guilds or the Wool Merchants Guild. He would have studied religion, arithmetic, geography, and the basics of nautical science. And interestingly, he would have studied in Genoese, not Italian. He probably would have learned Italian later on in life when he started to have contact with other, let's say, Italians. Then you have to define what Italian would have meant back then, even so now, probably. But then he would have spoken at school in Genoese, but writing and reading probably in Latin, obviously not the Latin of of Cicero or Caesar, but it would have been a, a, a Latin of the Middle Ages of the church and of the official documents of Genova. Then we know that later in life, he would have communicated principally in Spanish. Indeed, his great idea of, you know, searching for the East going West was something, his, his slogan was in Spanish, you know, he'd say, buscare el levante per el ponente. So, to, to look for the, the East going West, basically. But yeah, his early life, he would have spoken Genoese. And I, I mentioned that because I'm a, a bit of a training as a linguist as well. So I'm always wondering what, what languages these people would have spoken. As a teenager, he would have started uh, moving around on, on boats because his father's business would have required him to accompany his father on uh, trade journeys. And basically then... Uh, As the fortunes of the Fregaso faction declined, probably around 1467, Domenico Colombo moved to Savona, which is another city in uh, in the area of Liguria, where he would have opened an inn, still continuing with his uh, wool merchant's business. And that's probably where Cristoforo Colombo decided that staying inside an inn was not for him, and he made the great decision that he would become a sailor and an explorer. Once he embarked on his career, did he ever go back to visit or reside in Genoa during his lifetime? That I I can't answer correctly because I'm not sure. Now, the first document in which Christopher Columbus uh, officially appears is a document from 1473 in which he appears alongside his father in a notary document. We know his father had great interest in the area because 
Domenico Colombo appears in no less than 67 notary documents at the time. And we also have what we consider the last documented presence on the 25th of August, 1479. So he would have been around 27, 28 at the time, depending on where exactly you place his birthday. And that would have been the last recorded official presence of Christopher Columbus in the area. We don't know if he did return after that. Interestingly, he wouldn't really have missed Genova because one of the reasons he actually ended up in Spain, so Seville and Cordova, would not only be looking you know, towards the, 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 um, the Spanish royal couple for his idea, but also because there was an important community of Genoese in that area. If he never went back to Genova, in any case, he did find a sort of Genova abroad. Some of our listeners are probably scratching their heads and saying to themselves, Christopher Columbus was one of the most famous humans who ever walked on this earth. How come we don't have exact facts about his life? But what listeners need to know is that his reputation ebbed and flowed over the years, the decades, the centuries. And at the time of his waning years and after his death, he was not the controversial or celebrated person that he has been over the centuries. So that's something to keep into account. You're quite right there, Mark, because when you're a little boy, even if you do grow up to become one of the most notorious or famous people who ever walked the earth, you don't know that when you're three or four or even 14 or 16. So you don't sort of start to write down everything that you do. And even his father, for example, would have been a lot more worried about his property and his goods than, you know, knowing exactly what steps little Christopher was taking. Where is Columbus buried? His burial is, is a very interesting story. So it made me think sort of like um, Indiana Jones movie, you know, or one of your books, maybe, Mark, with the mysteries that even involved Nazis at a certain point. So I can say what we do know is that he died and was buried in Spain. He died in 1506. He was buried in Valladolid in Spain, and then he was briefly transferred in 1509 to the monastery de las Cuevas in Seville. Then in 1537, according to his own wishes, his son Diego had him transferred to Hispaniola, which is the island on which on the one side you have Haiti and on the other side you have the Dominican Republic. Now, some people say the story ends there, that he's still on Santo Domingo in the Cathedral of Santa Maria to this day. And that's because then there was a bit of confusion because the tomb he was in, some of the recognizing writings or marks were erased to avoid the, the remains being tampered with. So then another sort of line of the story has him going to Cuba when in 1795 France took over for, for not permanently, but took over the island uh, his remains were supposed to have been moved to Cuba. And shortly before that, I believe, no, sorry, shortly after that, bits of him, because uh, we're, we're talking ashes, may have been sent also to Genoa and to this, another Italian city, Pavia. And indeed, in Genoa, you can go and visit in one of the museums, a sort of urn, which is supposed to hold the remains of Christopher Columbus. Then, after the Spanish-American War, in 1891, he was supposed to have been moved back to Seville again, and supposedly he resides in the cathedral there. Going back to the bit of him that is in Geneva, it was stolen by the Nazis during the occupation of Geneva during the Second World War, and then it was an American general who brought it back to the city of Genoa. So, basically, the short answer to your question is we don't really know, 
although there may be a bit of him in Santo Domingo, a bit of him in Seville, a bit of him in Genova, and a bit of him in Pavia, or all of him in Santo Domingo, possibly. Now, since his death, how has he been remembered, memorialized, honored, and celebrated in his place of birth? Does any physical history, Mike, still remain that connects to him, like a building, site, church, the port area? Yeah, absolutely. So you can actually go and visit his uh, Casa Natale, so his birth house, although probably it's not the house he was born in, but a house he went to live in when he was about uh, four, and that's near the ancient Roman wars. You can see that to this day. Genoa has two train stations, Principe and Brignole, and outside of Principe there's a monument to him. He has a gallery uh, named after him and a high school as well. Then also in the museum, the Museo di Sant'Agostino, museum in Genova and the state archives have Christopher Columbus expositions. And there's also the Museo del Mare Galata. And that's where they also have that urn I mentioned before that supposedly hold at least part of his ashes. And they have that uh, on show. Then, of course, it's not specifically referred to Christopher Columbus, but the lighthouse of Genova, which is sort of the symbol of modern day Genova. And it's also when they have the football derby between the two Genova teams, they call it the Derby of the Lanterna, which is the Genova lighthouse. That would have been already in place at the time of Columbus. So you can go and visit that and imagine him watching it as he left the port or came back into the port. Because unfortunately, in 2018, there was quite a, a terrible accident in Genova. One of the highway bridges above the city fell, killing about 30 people, and they rebuilt that. And they had thought about naming it the Christopher Columbus Bridge, but they, they didn't go with that in the end. Then in Genoa, every year on Columbus Week, so not necessarily Columbus Day, but in the period around Columbus Day in Genoa, they have festivals and events. It's not a huge deal. You know, the, the average Genoa, obviously, you know, they, they, they know very well who Columbus was, what he did, how important he was, but it's not a huge, huge deal. I think he's more of a big deal in the United States than he is in Genova and definitely the rest of Italy. So to give you an example, uh, a few years back, they did one of those programs, you know, the most famous Italian as they did, for example, in the United Kingdom, where, where Churchill was deemed the, the most famous Britain. Christopher Columbus was on the list, but he was not on the top 10. There were more people, you know, Da Vinci, Dante, Michelangelo, Machiavelli, and, and so on. So you can find a lot of Columbus there, definitely. But maybe you, you, you would have sort of a bigger deal about him in the United States rather than in Italy. Tell us about the modern Genoa of the 2020s and how it still maintains its connection to the great explorer. Well, like we said before, you know, it has a lot of monuments and festivals and, and so on. It has recently been distracted by other events as well. It must be said that thanks to Christopher Columbus in 1992, so when we had the 500th anniversary of the revealing or discovery or whatever you want to call it of, of America, um, the city was, it got a huge makeover. It was a little bit dingy. You know, some of the air is a little bit dangerous, not well kept. And in 1992, it had this wonderful makeover and it's really become a beautiful city, especially the old area of the old port. They did it up very, very nicely. They built the Genoa Aquarium, which is one of the most famous in Italy. They, they built some attractions, some, let's say, sea-related attractions like a, a big pirate ship. 
a huge multiplex area with cinemas and things for the young people of Geneva to go and and hang out. And it is to this day a very, very beautiful city. It's on the sea, but at the same time, it's on the hills. So you can go up and down the hills through these little vicoli, these side streets to explore. Obviously, like every big city, it has some nice bits, it's some, some horrible, dark, dingy bits. It's, it's become a very lively place. It has this absolutely amazing theatre. It's one of the few theatres in the world that has four stages. So two in the front, two in the back, but actually on this gigantic rotating mechanism. So when they're doing one show, they can prepare the next show and then they just start up the mechanism and one stage goes down underground and the next one comes up behind it. So Geneva, thanks to Columbus, is I'm not saying he's starting to forget him at all, but it's looking elsewhere. And But thanks to Columbus, it did get a really wonderful makeover. In the 2000s, unfortunately, Geneva has had some bad times. So 2001 was the year of the G8 conference in Geneva, which was surrounded by very high levels of violence, you know, both in terms of looting and vandalism, but also brutal, brutal and unnecessary violence on the part of the police to the point that in 2001, Amnesty International, which is, you know, quite an impartial observer of human rights, declared the G8 in Geneva one of the most terrible suspensions of human rights in, in modern Italian history. Geneva has suffered from a lot of floods. And then there was the tragedy of the Morandi Bridge I mentioned in, uh, in 2018. And, you know, Geneva has had other illustrious uh, sons. Uh, one of our foremost singer-songwriters, Fabrizio de André, was from Geneva. And, and at the beginning, we mentioned that Christopher Columbus would have spoken in his early life and learned and gone to school in Genoese. So if you want to hear what Genoese sounds like, you can look up some of Fabrizio de Andrea's songs and see how really different it is from, uh, let's say, standard Italian. Tell us a little bit about the Italian dialects. Most lay people think that Italian is one language, like English, and everyone speaks it, perhaps with a different accents in different regions, but I think it's much more complicated than that in Italy. It was, in the sense that up until the 1950s, very few people spoke Italians. It was only the intelligentsia, you know, the intellectual Italians, the, the politicians, the writers, the journalists who fluently spoke Italian. Uh, indeed, for example, one of Italy's foremost early politicians, Camillo Benso, Count of Cavour, was often made fun of for his bad Italian because he would have spoken Piedmontese. But nowadays, in, in the Italy of 2021, most young people would have difficulty speaking their local dialect, unless you go down south. So if you go down Calabria, Puglia, Sicily, Naples, many people are still bilingual. Basically, they speak Italian and they would speak their local dialect. In the area I live in, so Emilia, which is in the Emilia-Romagna region, we understand our dialect. I personally understand our dialect. If I try to speak it, my wife laughs at me because I sound a bit ridiculous, but the older people are still able to communicate. Speaking specifically of Genoese, I, I, um, I went and fished out a line from, from Fabrizio de André, one of his most beautiful songs. And basically the line in English is, you will wake on the indico of the morning when the light has one foot on the land and the other in the sea. And in Italian, that would be, ti sveglierai sull'indaco del mattino, quando la luce ha un piede in terra e l'altro in mare. And that's standard Italian. In Genoese, it would be, ti ta descend, descend, den gudu du mattin, 
Caluz, Lampain, Terra, El Altro in Mar. So totally different sounds from Italian in that case. So we still have our dialects. Unfortunately, a lot of the northern dialects are dying out with the older generations. Well, that helps explain the differences between Italians who immigrated in large numbers, as you know, during the 19th and 20th century to North America. I visited Genoa in January 1993, a few weeks after the 500th anniversary celebrations ended. I was attending a business conference in the south of France on the Riviera and before flying home, drove across a nearby Italian border to the city. Having just missed the year-long festivities, I found Genoa to be somewhat sober and grey during this winter month, but was impressed with its colossal monuments and buildings and its magnificent port area. By the way, Mike, wasn't the port used for the dismantling of the Costa Concordia following the cruise ship disaster? Yes, yes, it was. Not, not, not obviously not the, the old port, but the, it was in Genoa, yeah. Where exactly do you reside in Italy? Okay, so I live in, in a little town called Reggio Emilia. It comes from the name Regium Lepidi. It was a Roman town founded by a consul, Marcus Emilius Lepidus, who is also responsible for our main road, the Via Emilia, which goes from Rimini down on the coast up to the city of Piacenza. And it, it's, I mean, <laughs> here there's an interesting difference because for us Italians, I'm very far from Genoa. It's about a three and a half hour drive. For Americans, Canadians and Russians, for example, it's, it's around the corner. Because I always remember when we, you know, I lived, I had the, the great fortune of, of spending some time living in Virginia, which I loved. And, you know, in Virginia, going around the corner to the mall was a 45 minute drive. You know, in Italy, if you drive for 45 minutes, you're in a different province, no matter what different, what direction you go. But I was very lucky to have my uncle living in Geneva for many years. So I got to visit lots and lots of times and stay for, for some time every time I went because he had a flat there right in the center on, on Viale San Lorenzo, which is one of the main roads, one of the main historical, one of the main roads in the historical center. When was the last time you visited Genoa? Unfortunately, quite a while back. I, I couldn't pinpoint the year, but it must have been somewhere around 2005. Although perhaps the most memorable visit was in 2001, just before the events of the Geneva G8 conference, in which I was sitting in, in, uh, in the room in my uncle's flat looking out, and they were actually preparing for guerrilla warfare. I mean, they were, they were soldering iron bars and gates onto the two sides of these little tight, narrow streets, and, and it really looked like a city that was you know, preparing for some kind of invasion. Well, this has been an enlightening visit to the birth city of Christopher Columbus. Thank you, Mike, for granting me the great honor and privilege of sharing your wonderful audience. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope we get to do it again soon. Right back at you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really love these kinds of collaborations, and I really think that history podcasting should see more of these. I, this, this should be sort of the basis of history podcasting, working together on our common, our often common history. So thank you. I do hope you enjoyed that interview, and thank you very much for listening. I'd also like to thank my lovely Patreon supporters. Forgive me if I've been a bit absent in the last few weeks. We've had some issues and quite a lot of work back up, but hopefully we'll be back on track soon. In particular, the first part of the Magritte Hack and Galileo Galilei level. Anthony G, Brian J, Carrie W, Selene, Chanel, Chris David L, Dean V, Douglas, Federica R, 
Francisco A, Gabriel S, Greg, Ignacio, Il Valentino, James C, Jeff M, Jeffrey W, Joseph S, Juan Diego, Julie G, and Old John in Milwaukee. Thanks, of course, also to the tippy top level Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, Maxime, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Renat M, and Sen. Thank you, thank you, one and all. As always, if you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can go on to our support page and become a member of the lovely Patreon family and have access to extra content or donate via PayPal. Thank you, thank you very much for that. You'll also find timelines and maps and anything else you may need to navigate our country's complicated history. Thanks again to you for listening and arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.